This is chapter 156 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a novel that explores why families drift apart, a period drama that's already on its way to becoming a major motion picture. Then we catch a serious case of disco fever. Best-selling author Jamie Beck already has several successful romance books under her belt. For her latest series, though, she moves away from the world of happily ever after and dives into the sometimes complicated relationship between siblings. I recently got to talk to her about If You Must Know, the first book in her new series set in the fictional town of Potomac Point. It's also a summer read pick. Well, If You Must Know really came about because I wanted to explore the idea of why siblings can kind of drift apart. In my own life, I've seen um, family dynamics where family members stop talking to each other and so forth. And um, so that was sort of the inspiration for coming up with a story. And the secret between them isn't as huge as all of the little petty grievances that we build up, I think, you know, through childhood with our parents and playing favoritisms and so forth. Um, and then, of course, to add drama, I had to add in some um, interesting details with the soon-to-be ex-husband and, and so on. So I was really aiming to um, branch away from romance novel writing and into more general fiction, commercial fiction. So I really wanted to write an entertaining beach book, you know, a, a fun page-turning uh, vacation read. You really nail the relationship uh, between sisters, the love, the bickering, as you mentioned, sometimes the drawing apart. Do you have a sister? I don't. I have a younger brother. Um, I have a cousin who grew up five houses down the street that's my same age, and we are very, very close. And my mother is extremely um, close and involved with her sister, but I don't have one of my own. I've always wanted one. Now. <laughs> I never would have guessed that because uh, I, I'm i the oldest of three. There's me, my brother, and my sister. And my sister mm-hmm. and I, you kind of nailed the relationship that that we had when we were younger and as we that we have as adults <laughs> well i think that um siblings are siblings and you always if, especially if you have siblings who have very different personalities where you have the amanda character who is the more you know um lives up to the parents expectations and is the more responsible in a classic sense kind of sibling and then you have the the one that gets away with everything. And I think that dynamic is pretty universal. So <laughs> whether your sisters, brothers and sisters or two brothers, you probably could find a lot of people who would relate to those dynamics. So are you more an Aaron or are you more of an Amanda? I'm definitely more Amanda, <laughs> sadly, because Aaron has so much more fun in her life. But um, yes, I'm definitely the more uh, responsible and introverted type of person. So I, I can relate to Amanda, who found who finds it hard to let her guard down and, you know, let the world in. What draws you to write about families and especially mothers and daughters and, and wives and friends? I think if you look back over all of my books, even the romance novels, there is one common theme and it's always it always has to do with redemption and um, of some kind, you know, uh, and I think that I've, I used to want to be a psychiatrist when I was younger, and my dad talked me out of that. But that was what I, I love 
dissecting people and why they do the things they do, why they do self-destructive things, why they hurt people they love, um, and and how how can you love someone who has hurt you? You know, in a, and again, in a family context, I think we see that a lot because people do hurt each other, but yet you also have this deep well of love because of all of the things you go through together in a family. And um, you have to kind of find a way to forgive and still love someone. So I love to explore that. And I don't know why, I guess, again, I said I have some personal history within my own extended family of, you know, certain amount of dysfunction and, um, you know, behaviors that certainly were less than ideal. And so maybe that's, maybe I'm trying to heal my own childhood. I don't know. (laughs) They say writers are always trying to do that. So possibly that's what I'm doing. I love that you've also found a roundabout way to, to study psychology. (laughs) Yes, I got there by hook or by crook. I know. I, I really went way off the, my, my initial, you know, path of what I, what I thought I would do in my life and came full circle around to this. So, but I'm, so happy. I love, I love, I always say, I think what I love best about writing books is that it's the only area of my entire life where I get to control everything. (laughs) And it turns out exactly the way I want it to. (laughs) Although that, that being said, it's not always a very straightforward route to get there, right? No, no. Each book is really a different people. A lot of times people will ask authors, what's your process? And I laugh because and I think a lot of my author friends would agree, um, the process can change, you know, depending on how experienced you are. Like my earliest books, my process was different from now. But also some books come to you really easily, like a gift, and you sit down and you just see it all really fast. And some are a real struggle and you get in the middle and you think this is the worst thing ever. How am I ever going to get out of this? So um, I wish that there were a, I wish that it it would get easier. I thought that it would. And this, I think I'm writing right now my 17th book, and it's really not any easier than those early books. In some ways, it's harder because you have expectations now, um, you know, from your publisher, from your editor, from your readers. You know, when you're starting out, you, it's kind of all possibility and and no expectation. So there's something very sweet. I envy debut authors. (laughs) So did you find it difficult to going from romance to more general women's fiction? I didn't because I, I think I was never really a romance writer. And even with when my agent took my first book that she tried to sell out into the market, it got roundly rejected. Um, the romance authors thought it was too women's fictiony, and the women's fiction authors thought it was too romancy. So I think I was always, in my mind, more of a, let's say, a, a, an author that a lot of people think is a romance author is Nicholas Sparks, but he's really not. Um, he, a, a romance is the central storyline is the couple's commitment to love, and it must end with a happy it must end with a happy ever after. That's a romance. And he often writes, you know, you have people dying and things don't always work out. He writes love stories, but in a more general fiction way. And I think I was always more in that sort of middle ground. So women's fiction wasn't this huge leap. And then with each series, I kind of walked closer and closer 
to the women's fiction line because I knew that's really where I thought I wanted to be. So I was trying to sort of pull my readers along. I know some won't come fully over with me because the true romance reader does not want all the other kinds of stories, but there's a lot of crossover readers. So hopefully I'll keep them and, and gain some new readers who don't read romance. So. Yeah, those romance readers love their happy endings and don't want it any other oh. way. <laughs> well, just like thriller, just like thriller readers or, you know, any any genre fiction has its pretty standard ending, right? Like the, the cops always win or, um, you know, the bad guy is caught in a thriller usually. So most genre fiction follows a pattern and has a predictable ending once you know that genre. So in a mystery, they always solve it, you know. So romance is no different. In that regard. The book itself is set in a fictional place called Potomac Point. Is it similar to a place you've called home? It's not similar to a place I've called home, but um, I had a roommate in college who lived in Annapolis, so I spent a decent amount of time down in that area um, in my younger life. And then I have that cousin that I mentioned that grew up on, you know, a few doors down the street from me. She lives um, outside of Baltimore and spends a fair amount of time on the bay um, in a house that her husband's family has. So I sort of made up this sort of amalgam of, of those areas. And I just, you know, made my own little town there, like I did with another series up here set in Connecticut, where I took a bunch of little towns along the coast of Connecticut and kind of blended them into one fictional town. Uh, an author recently told me that you never really want to write about a real place because everyone will then proceed to tell you what you got wrong. That's true. <laughs> and I know like my very first book that came out, I set in Malibu and I had spent a summer out there in my young 20s, um, not in Malibu, but in the L.A. area. And so I felt fairly familiar with it, but I did get a couple of little details wrong, even something I think it's called, they call it like PCH, not the PCH or something like that. Like, you know, little things will hint at that. And I've still set some books in real places like Block Island or New York City. You know, I'll have scenes and stuff set in places where I'm I'm very familiar with. Um, sometimes I'll make up a restaurant, though, because I don't want to. It, you get it gets tricky, especially if you're going to have something bad happen. You don't want to set it in a real place because then they might get, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know. I don't know. So I, I, it's, it's, it's a tricky balance for me anyway. It's easier to just make everything up. <laughs> this book is the first in a series, and we actually won't have to wait too long for the next one to come out, right? We don't, right. That was, um, that was not the original plan. I think uh, the first book was supposed to come out in April, but then things happened and um, it got pushed all the way into June. So this next book comes out in September. And it is a series technically because they're all set, the three books are set in the same town. Um, but the care, unlike my past series, these characters and these stories are not connected to each other. So while there may be a cameo mention or appearance of a character from one book in a later story, they are not in any way significantly related or um, making any serious, even as a serious subcharacter in a future story. So they're discrete. They're discrete stories that they're just unified by the location. Part of me hopes that that funky little bakery that you have in the book comes back. Because... That is in all three books. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I love that place. I of... wish it real. I wish that were a real place. I know. I I love that too. It was. It's. It, 
the the baked goods that I described are baked uh, based off of a place here in my hometown where I live now, but the look of that place is not the same. But um, yeah, um, that that is. I wish that I wish that my town would open a place like that as well. I would hang out there. <laughs> the anti Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> so Jamie, what do you want readers to take away? I think in this first book, it's really the idea that sort of how you treat others will kind of be reflected back to you. So with uh, with Amanda and Aaron, they both sort of thought that the other one didn't really like them and they projected their own insecurities onto the other one. And then of course it would get reflected back. So in a sense, I think we often in our relationships create our own realities. And so if you want someone to be warm and unjudgmental and, and these things towards you, then you need to also reflect that back towards them. And so that was sort of one of the takeaways. Um, And I think just that in most cases, I do think that families, whether it's parents to children or siblings to each other, they're not out to hurt each other. And, but we accidentally do, um, or even if we intentionally do because we're angry, hopefully there's always a way to resolve that and, and rekindle the love and the closeness and that your family really is the one thing that is with you your entire life. You know, like even if you don't want them to be, they're still your family. You can't really divorce your family. So it, you know, you want to try to make the best of that, I think. I think there are probably quite a few people who are nodding their heads along with that sentiment, myself included. (laughs) I have some very nice letters, actually, from readers who have picked it up and said, this has come to me at the right time. I'm having a problem with my sister right now. And, you know, this is helping me think about it and, and, and so forth. So hopefully, hopefully that's always great to hear as a writer. So hopefully, you know, it helps them. And the next book, uh, when does that come out and what's it called? That book is called Truth of the Matter, and it comes out in late September. And um, I love that story. That one's very near and dear to my heart because um, I'm a mother of teenagers, as is the main character in that story. And one of my children does suffer with anxiety, and as does her daughter in that book. Her daughter has a more severe form than one of my children, but um, it um, it's a, it's a lot about how we as women um, often sort of subvert our own uniqueness in our efforts to be a good wife and a good mom and a good daughter in our middle life stage. You know, um, we kind of lose who we are in a lot of cases. And so that story is a lot about Anne um, as she's going through this divorce and dealing with her grandmother has dementia and her daughter has anxiety. So she's got a lot of things pulling at her. And at the same time, she's trying to rediscover who am I because her daughter is getting ready to go off to college soon and she's going to be all alone in the middle of her life, which she didn't expect. So um, I'm not going through a divorce, but just a lot of the things that she's dealing with in that story were very, um, uh, you know, really pulled at me and are things I see myself and many of my friends going through. So I'm excited for that story to come out. I think it will resonate widely with women in in those various roles. Definitely. I think that's a, a, another book that you're going to get letters about. Uh, I, I, I would, you know, it would be nice. I don't want to say, <laughs> you know, I, I hate to be predictive, but, it, you know, I always love when when 
someone has taken the time not only to read the book, which I always find amazing that someone picks up my books, but when they actually reach out and leave a review or, or even more so find you and, and email you, that's really a special, um, it, it makes my day in a way that's hard to describe. Well, before that one comes out, readers can familiarize themselves with Potomac Point in your first book, If You Must Know. Jamie Beck, thank you for spending some time today and talking to us about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very nice to meet you. If you're a struggling writer, let the story of our next author serve as inspiration. It's taken 18 years for Susanna Lane to see her book, Mr. Malcolm's List, published. The road there involves self-publishing, a screenplay, a podcast. I had a chance to chat with Suzanne about her Jane Austen-inspired novel, which is now also destined to become a major motion picture with a star-studded cast. Plus, it's our second summer read pick of the week. There's a touch of Emma, there's a touch of Pride and Prejudice, but the book is also so modern and so fresh. Tell me, what was your inspiration? Oh, it's kind of hard to remember. <laughs> I wrote it uh, so long ago. This has not, definitely not been an overnight success story. I mean, you mentioned Emma, Pride and Prejudice. I definitely have to say Jane Austen was an inspiration. I've always been a fan. She's definitely my favorite author. But it's also got a little bit more of that farcical element. <laughs> so I'm also a fan of more comical writers like P.G. Woodhouse, Oscar Wilde. I'm really a fan of British humor. So just anything funny, really. And I just think for some reason, that era of history in England, there's just so much you can make fun of. <laughs> Let's talk about the plot a little bit. We have this gentleman who has a little bit of a reputation of being a ladies' man and of dismissing women who don't match all this criteria on a list that that he has for them. And I think often in modern societies, women are the ones who are faulted or made fun of because they have a list, but when it comes to men, but you turn the tables. The starting point for the book was this idea that a man could have a list and a woman could feel humiliated by not matching up to those qualifications. I don't know how that originally came to me. It was probably in the shower because that's where all my great ideas <laughs> happen. But yeah, it was the idea of a man with a list that hit me first. And it, at first, I kind of thought of it as modern day. And then I thought, wow, but what if this happened when, you know, matchmaking was such an important part of life and society and making a good marriage, that would make it even more interesting, I thought. So that's when I moved it into the Regency era. So you mentioned at the very top of this interview that this has been a labor of love. Is it 18 years in the making? <laughs> yes. So my very first book was accepted for publication back in 2001. And it was released a month or two after the September 11th attacks by a small imprint that closed its doors, unfortunately, shortly after releasing my book. So I had already begun writing Mr. Malcolm's List, and I finished it probably early 2002, and um, it just sat on my computer hard drive for quite a while. Then around 2009, my husband suggested, you know, why don't you just publish it yourself. And the ebook industry was kind of taking off at that point. So it seemed 
in a slightly easier proposition. So I did, and it was never, you know, a bestseller or a huge success. It still went largely unnoticed until I actually adapted it into a screenplay. And that was around 2011. I uploaded it onto a website that Amazon had actually started, and you could upload screenplays. You know, they didn't charge an entrance fee or anything. And I said, oh, what the heck? So I did, and it it was a semifinalist. And that's when I started really thinking, oh, maybe, you know, I should get into the, the screenwriting thing. And it was funny, too, because someone had read one of my books and published a review. And I remember they said something like they really enjoyed the dialogue. And I really enjoy writing dialogue much, much more than description. So I began to think maybe I would have a a more enjoyable career in the screenwriting industry if I could um, become a screenwriter. Of course, I had a very naive view of what it took to break into into that industry as well. So yes, it's been a very long journey on both fronts on um, being a novelist and a screenwriter. But, you know, persistence pays off. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say you love writing the dialogue because this book is just packed with so much witty a back and forth between the characters. And then also, they're also seeing some scenes that are just ripe for bringing to the big screen. Uh, most of them have to do with water. But <laughs> <laughs> since you wrote it as a, a book first and then later adapted it, you weren't thinking about that as you were writing the book. I was not at all. It's very funny. Um, I I wasn't thinking of it being turned into a movie. Although I think like, you know, this is probably true of a lot of writers. It's kind of a movie in our head. So so we are visualizing a lot of these things as we write the book. So I've kind of totally buried the lead in this interview because the film adaptation of Mr. Malcolm's List is kind of a huge deal. And it's gotten so much attention. What can you tell us about it? When I adapted the book into the screenplay, I uploaded it onto a website called The Blacklist. And that was a website where screenwriters could pay for professional readers to rate their scripts. And if it got a score higher than an eight, there was an automated email generated and sent to industry execs like producers, directors, agents, managers. So that is really what broke me into the industry because I uploaded it and it got a nine. And that was um, late 2014. And that's when my phone actually started ringing and people from Hollywood started calling. So um, I was kind of taken aback because I, I don't know, I just felt like it wasn't the, you know, kind of cutting edge script that would take Hollywood by storm. But the comments that I received on it were that it was just so feel good and it was just kind of refreshing. So I think hopefully that is also true of the book. It's just, you know, just a light, fun story that brings a smile to people's face. So it got a good score in the blacklist. Um, It got some publicity from that. And the blacklist also had a podcast where they recorded some of the scripts. They got actors together. So they did that with my script and some great actors did a table read of the script. And that was heard by an up and coming director, um, Emma Holly Jones. And she contacted me and my agent and wanted to be attached to direct the feature. 
but in Hollywood, everything, you know, it takes a beat, as they like to say. So this all began in 2015 was the podcast. And then, you know, now we're here 2020. And this is when it's finally, finally looks like, it, you know, it's a reality. Of course, coronavirus slowed it down a little bit. But yeah, there's a great cast that's been attached. And, you know, I just couldn't be more excited about the actors who are involved. They're just all amazing. And um, and then in the meantime, too, uh, Refinery29 gave us the money to make a short film that was like a proof of concept for the feature. And it was only about 10 minutes. It, it kind of was a prequel to the feature film and to the book because there's um, a scene that takes place in the short film that doesn't take place in either the book or the screenplay. It, it just takes place off stage, but it is in the short film. So that's available online. It's about 10 minutes and I'm just absolutely in love with it. I just think, you know, Emma Holly did a great job um, and the actors just killed it. And yeah, I'm really, really excited. You are such a humble screenwriter, not mentioning any of these huge stars who are going to be bringing <laughs> your story to life. And the cast has been getting a lot of attention because of how diverse it is. Yes. And that's another reason I was so happy we were able to make the short film, because this is something a little, you know, different that we're doing a diverse cast in an English period piece. So the fact that the short film got such a wonderful response and, you know, is just so amazing and beautiful just really shows that our feature is going to be the same way. But, yeah, I'll ha happily brag about the cast. <laughs> so Shopei Dearsu, he's going to play Mr. Malcolm. He's known for Gangs of London and Humans, um, some British television shows, and he's just lovely and I couldn't be more excited. He was very, very wonderful in the short and very nice to work with. And um, now Gemma Chan was in the short film and did an awesome job. But because of all the rescheduling, her role is going to be played by Constance Wu in the feature, who is just such a great comedic actress. And I was very excited to have her come on board. And she... I, I heard her talk about the role of Julia, and it's so funny because Julia is one of those people, uh, characters people love to hate. And, um, you know, like you mentioned Emma, and she's got a little bit of Emma in her because she's very controlling and manipulative. And uh, But Constance loves the character because for that reason and just thinks it's a really fun character to play. So I can't wait to see her take on it. And then Frida Pinto, you know, who was in Slumdog Millionaire and, and many, many, many other things, but um, who's just beautiful and radiant as Selena Dalton and Sam Hewen. <laughs> He's just so amazing and, and seems so sweet. I haven't met him yet in person because he wasn't on the short film. All, Oliver Jackson Cohen plays Lord Cassidy, which is so funny because when they were casting the short film, they sent me reels of his and he was in a, a lot of serious roles. And I kept thinking, this is not going to work. You know, this guy, this guy is not, you know, a comedian. He doesn't play comic roles. And he was 
so hilarious in the short film. And he just embodied Lord Cassidy or Cassie. He was just, I mean, I am absolutely in love with that man. And I couldn't see anyone else playing Cassie. And then even even the, the smaller roles in the short film, there was an, an actor, Divian Ladwa, played a footman. And he was in Lion with Nicole Kidman and Dev Patel. He played um, the adoptive brother of Dev Patel. And he was so amazing that he practically stole the, the show. You know, <laughs> just I just remember, you know, getting, uh, arriving on set and then um, meeting him. And, and it, it was just everybody, the the society lady who, uh, you know, was, was giving Jim Chan a hard time about losing Mr. Mouth and everybody. It was just, it was just an amazing cast, even for that small short film. So I'm so excited. I think the director, the casting director, the producers, they all really hear it of this film. And they, I mean, to me, the humor was so important. And I really feel that's coming through. What do you say to the haters? Who, who think that because this is a period drama that it shouldn't be as diverse as it is? Well, it's true that when I wrote the book and the script, I wasn't necessarily thinking in terms of a diverse cast. But now I really think it's a brilliant idea. And I'm all in, especially since the short film was shot. Because instead of overshadowing the story, I feel like it's really enhanced the story and it's added this vibrant vibrancy to it. It's just really beautiful and refreshing. And all the cast are just really good actors. And that's the main reason whether or not a character is believable. It doesn't matter what they look like. If the acting's not good, you won't be drawn in. So I guess I would say to the haters, we understand there will be some but please keep an open mind and you might be surprised and actually find yourself loving this new fresh take on a historical film. You mentioned that the book is really about the humor and humor is universal. It doesn't matter whose mouth those words are coming out of. If they're funny and they entertain you, that's the point. Exactly. And that is why I am just so thrilled with this cast, because I think that will totally come through the humor, you know, the romance the chemistry between the actors, I think, you know, that will be just incredible. So, you know, what's not to love. <laughs> so I know you mentioned a filming got pushed back a little bit. When do you think, I mean, I guess it's anybody's guess when, when we might see it on the big screen, but when's your hope that uh, it'll land in theaters? Well, the plan, as long as everything goes through, okay, it, it was pushed back to film next, Spring in um, Ireland. And then I think the idea is that it will eventually come out um, the year after that. So early in the year after that, I think, I think Valentine's Day was mentioned. So of, um, I don't even know what year that is, 2022. But I guess that, um, I guess we'll see, you know, these things are never written in stone. <laughs> I guess you've waited this long. What's a couple of years more, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm anxious to see it as well. I'm excited. <laughs> We've been talking with Suzanne Elaine. Thank you. And her new book, Mr. Malcolm's List, you're going to have to wait a little bit for the movie, but go and catch the short if you can't wait. Although I always say read the book first before you go see anything. But I don't know how you feel because you've got a foot in both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally agree with you. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us today about it. And you've got me so excited. Your enthusiasm is infectious. So I can't wait now either. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's been a pleasure talking with you. In his young adult debut, crime fiction writer Richie Narvaez mixes a murder mystery with disco fever. Set in New York City during the 1970s, his tale of a Puerto Rican Nancy Drew is a fun history and music lesson for young readers and a trip down memory lane for some of you adults. We cover it all in our chat about Holly Hernandez and the death of disco. (laughs) The last time Mm -hmm. we talked, you were whacking off hipsters. This time Mm -hmm. around, you've got disco in your crosshairs. What gives? The hipster thing was a really great way to talk about gentrification in New York City. And now uh, I'm using disco, which a lot of people may think of derisively. It's just an old-fashioned and very kitschy form of music. But in 1979, it was indicative of all these uh, social classes. Uh, clashes within our society. Uh, It it, it was a a music form that was created for and and by the disenfranchised. And when it started getting too popular, there was a big backlash against it. So I really, I like that part of disco. And I actually end up, after doing research for this, really liking disco much more than I used to. You know, I have that written down in my notes here that you really uh, approach disco and the, the, the dancing that evolved around it as this all-inclusive art form. It appealed to black, to white, gay, straight, and you kind of have this modern message in this book wrapped up in a lot of glitter. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it, and the thing is, it wasn't my intention at first. I just wanted to write a YA book. You know, uh, everybody had told me, write a YA book. That's the only place to make money. Nobody cares about your other work. Write YA, YA, you know, uh, and this is, you know, with Twilight and all the Harry Potter books. But I started to uh, I had written a, a YA short story uh, with the character of Holly, uh, of Holly Hernandez and her rival, Xander Herrera, in, in an elite high school in Brooklyn. And I wanted to write a whole novel, but I was worried that modern teenagers with the way they speak and, and their lives I was a little too long in the tooth to understand that. So I said, well, I was 14 in 1979, and why don't I take the book back to then? And then by doing that and doing research, it opened up all these possibilities of plot. And disco, which uh, you know I hadn't thought that much about, there's so much going on there. So it was really fun to explore that time and the fashion and the music uh, which and I, I really love writing about music in in my crime fiction. So it was a really a, really a fun book to write. Now, this being YA, do you think the time period will resonate with younger readers, or will they just think, oh, that you know, that's 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 old, that's passe? Yeah, you know, I uh, I was wondering whether I mean it's sort of like a historical YA, which kind of makes it unique. You know, there's not, I don't think anybody else has really touched on this period, or not many people have. Uh, there is a possibility that some kids uh, reading it nowadays are like, wow, what's this? You know, this is not about me and, and, and uh, uh, my, uh, uh, my video games and my, my phone. But I think, uh, I think that's sort of doing disservice to a lot of teenagers who want to just read new stuff. So I think they will be open-minded. I, I'm hoping they will be. And I think what I'd like is that they read this and they actually go back and explore more about history. It's, I mean, it's funny. It's, this is within my lifetime, 
but it's history. It's like deep history to some people. It makes it, it historical is supposed to be like way past fifty years ago. But this is this is um, for a YA kid, for somebody who's 10, 12, 13, This is super historical, and I'm hoping that they do go back and do some research and find out about the time and listen to the music because I really think they will enjoy it. What also struck me too is like I know you intended disco to to kind of be that metaphor for for social change and to explain kind of what's happening nowadays. But, you know, specifically here in New York, the whole angle about what the NYPD was like in the late 70s and what New York City was like in the late 70s, we're starting to see that again now anyway. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, I didn't intend for for that when I wrote this. I think we I did the final draft two years ago. Uh, we're living through very strange times now. Um but one of the things about, for example, making Holly's mom uh, a detective, uh, it brought up all these things about what a female detective would have to deal with in 1979. And that I had to do more research about what was happening with law enforcement, the, the you know, issues of, of sexism. There were uh, there were stuff going on there. And there was also uh, an increase increased crackdown on crime coming from the governor and the mayor. And they were throwing a lot of teenagers into places like Spofford. Uh, there was, you know, there was just like um, this whole no mercy kind of attitude. And that's what happens to Xander. And that's why he has that horrible weekend where he's stuck in Spofford, which is um, tragic for him, but also a bizarre learning experience that changes his character. He makes some interesting friends along the way. <laughs> yes, yes. You've described or I've seen Holly described as a Puerto Rican Nancy Drew. Let's backtrack mm -hmm. a little bit. Tell us a little bit what, about what the story's about. Oh, okay. So Holly is a very precocious, very intelligent young woman who is growing up in uh, Brooklyn in the 1970s. Her mother is a police detective, and she does not want to be a detective. She wants to be a scientist like her father, her late father. And that's one of the reasons she wants to go to uh, this, this elite high school in Brooklyn, which my lawyers have told me to say is definitely not Brooklyn Tech, <laughs> but is somehow very similar. And so she's going there because she just wants to you know, learn about science. And the thing is, though, because she, she loves her mom, she's also still fascinated by the sort of the science of crime, the forensic analysis. And when something happens at her school, when one of her favorite teachers is found murdered, that triggers something in her where she looks at a crime scene and she's there by accident. She looks at the crime scene and she's able to analyze it just like a Sherlock Holmes, just like a Nancy Drew. And she's able to, to uh, help her mother with the case, even though her mother doesn't want to help her with the case. And what happens is that the first thing she's because she's this is new to her. She accuses her rival, this other uh, uh, guy, Xander Herrera, who's also very intelligent. Uh, he's sort of like, um, let's say, a teenage Ignatius Riley uh, from Confederacy of Dunces. And he, you know, is very grumpy guy, looks at the sort of a, a um, very uh, a, sort of an outcast. And she accuses him. Because it seems like he's the one who did it. And then when she realizes she's wrong, that pushes her to try to find out the truth. And at the same time, because he's her rival, he wants to find out the truth before her to clear his name, but also to be able to lord it over her at the end. 
so these two, they, they're kind of like the super smart nerds in, in what I affectionately describe as a school full of nerds. <laughs> yes. Did, so did you go to a school that's, that's like this? Yes, very. Uh, yes, exactly. I went to Brooklyn Tech, uh, which I guess should, should not be uh, much of a surprise. Uh, I was to Brooklyn Tech in Fort Greene. Um, and this funny thing was, I came from uh, a junior high school, junior high school 50 in Williamsburg, and I was the valedictorian. And uh, they would tell me I'm Mr. Bright, smartest kid in the school. Then I get into Brooklyn Tech, and I was in a school full of all the other smartest kids from their school. So all of a sudden I went from feeling kind of special to just one of a number. And it was a difficult adjustment. So uh, after a while I got used to it uh, and it was, it's a really, it was a really fun school and a fun time. But uh, I used that experience as one of another reasons I, I made this story. I put the story back in 1979. It's like I had this, all this material uh, that I could call back on for the story. So it was a fascinating time. So as a, as a fellow former magnet school student, yeah. uh, I can tell you that there were definitely, I could tell that you, you must have gone to this fictional Brooklyn Tech. So where did you fall on the nerd spectrum? I ask the fellow nerd. Oh, oh, wow. I don't know. I don't think I was as hardcore as I actually wanted to be. <laughs> um, I really like, I, I think I, I was a um, science fiction nerd. I was a Trekkie. Um, I read comic books, uh, like the Bible They were they were like a Bible to me, but, um, and I was also incredibly socially awkward and, uh, naive, but I also, I don't think I was the kind of perhaps I think stereotypical nerd who could build a nuclear bomb in my house. You know, I wasn't like a superior, superior knowledge. I just think I was, um, a bit of the, that outcast who liked stuff that wasn't in the mainstream. But you had classmates no. who could build that in their basement, I bet. Yes, totally. I did have <laughs> classmates. Like, I had a bunch of classmates that just scored, uh, scored perfect scores on the SAT. It's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I wasn't quite at that level. So, I, I, you know, I will say I did okay. But, um, but yeah, I, wasn't, I, I, I wanted to be more of a nerd. So maybe a 6 out of 10. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about the the music, disco in particular. Now, mm -hmm. you went and wrote your own songs for this yes. book, which it took me a little while to figure out what uh, what that kid was up to, what Daniel was up to Good with, with the way he was speaking. I'm like, he speak okay, so he's just uber smart. He doesn't speak like the rest of us, but mm -hmm. it turns out he's speaking in song lyrics yes. that you've I, I created. I wanted to make it a puzzle within a puzzle, yeah. <laughs> Why did you go and do all that extra work? <laughs> well, um, here's the deal. I've always wanted to write a character who speaks in song lyrics. Um, I've, I find w what I tend to do, and I know other people who will, will drop in song lyrics while they're talking. You know, um, have I told you lately that I love you? That kind of thing. You know, uh, just, you know, a song lyric arbitrarily. But I wanted that character who did it all the time. Uh, and so I was doing this with Daniel in the first draft. And then I realized if I do it too much, I have to pay people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to, if you use more than a, uh, there's a certain percentage that you are allowed to use, but I wasn't sure how much I would use uh, of a song. And, and I had all these popular songs lined up. So I said, you know what I'll do? I will write 
his lyrics for him. And it was really fun because then I got to imagine myself uh, as one of the B-52s writing a new song for the B-52s. And, and we had to put it in, in an appendix, all the stuff, all the songs so that people would look back. But yeah, I intended, I was hoping that people would get confused, like you were saying, and try to figure it out. And the appendix is listed there in the front so that people go, oh, what is this stuff in the back? And hopefully when it comes together, it'll be a fun little thing that clicks. So did you write the songs first or did you go back and write the songs after you gave him the lines you wanted to give him? Well, I did. I I will tell you that uh, I went through a period uh, in uh, in my 30s where I was just writing a lot of goofy poetry for no good reason. And so I took some of that, I revisited some of that goofy poetry, and I said, oh, let me, let me see, uh, let me make this into a Harry Nilsson song. So I basically chopped it apart, and I said, this is kind of something, I, you know, trying to think of the way he would sound. And yeah, so some of the songs were written beforehand and massaged into Daniel's um, dialogue, but then sometimes like, oh, I need Daniel to say something like this, so let me invent a song that has that line in it. So it was a back and forth process. What do you want young readers to take away from your story? Oh, well, I do hope they uh, enjoy for, at the first, at the very, you know, uh, at the minimum, they are entertained by the story. I hope that they're uh, intrigued by there's a, having a strong female role model as well as a strong male role model. Uh, they're both just, they're highly intelligent kids. And it's okay to be an intellectual uh, and to be nerdy. Uh, We live in a more nerdy society, but I think a lot of intellectualism tends to get um, uh, downplayed or at least is still made fun of. Uh, And I also want uh, readers to go back and listen to disco, go back and uh, listen to the music from the 70s and understand that there was a lot of good stuff there uh, that's worth going back and, and and hearing what's your favorite song from the era oh my god well favorite disco song is there but for the grace of god by machine okay do you have a favorite disco song i don't know that i do i'm not a mm. huge disco fan but yeah i wasn't at first either but i went because of this i was listening to it for hours uh and i, I now i love donna summer i do um, love donna summer yeah. Yeah. There's probably one in there. Oh, oh, on the radio is my favorite Donna Summer song. Well, I'm in radio, so of course I love On the Radio. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking with Richie Narvaez, the new book, Holly Hernandez and the Death of Disco. Thank you so much for talking to us today about it. And hopefully someone will go out there, dust off those old records and start playing them. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Thank you very much for having me. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we take a trip back in time to when the New York Public Library first opened more than 100 years ago. Until then, catch up with us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.